You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to this week's edition of the Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio Show for Monday the 24th of May 2021. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which we transmit people-powered radio. Thank you to Democracy Now! for the last hour of current affairs. My name's Chris and Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, we're a show about cycling, bicycles, walking, active transport... A smattering of politics and a whole bunch of stuff to do with uh, moving around uh, Melbourne, Victoria and possibly overseas as well with some of the shows we've done over the years. On today's show, I'm going to be talking to Matthew and this is about an article that was in the conversation last week, Busted, Five Myths About the 30 kilometre Speed Myth in Australia. And also last week, I believe it was the United Nations had a promotional thing of love 30 about uh, getting lower speed limits in Australia or I should say across the world. I admit there was a very interesting article that popped up in the age this morning, continuing uh, with some analysis of what is going on with active transport in Victoria. And I couldn't help but notice that uh, active transport Victoria got mentioned again for the umpteenth time. They've been mentioning this, I think, since 2016 about a fund that had $100 million to do with active transport, walking and cycling, and how that has been spent or not been spent and how it just gets keep on, just keeps on getting repeated. I think they've probably got compound interest on this fund so far about what is actually going on in the state of Victoria. Well, the problem is we don't really have any benchmarks and we are... Well, decisions in this state are driven by populist thinking. And it's something that's actually permeated all three levels of government for too long. You know, if you've been in the advocacy space for a long time, you'd know about this mythical, fabled PBN uh, network, the principal bike network where things are supposed to link up. And never really has, never probably will. And in today's article, just bring that up because I've photocopied too many pieces of paper. Oh, there it is over there. Basically, the state government has actually set new things that we're supposed to reach. Yeah, what, 25% of walking and cycling to boost active modes of travel. Yeah, 25% by 2030. Now, we're apparently at 18%, which I find a bit ridiculous. It's kind of in keeping with, if you know, have you seen the uh, traffic recently, people are avoiding public transport and they are flocking to their cars. And we could see all this happening a year ago. And this is another reason and why you know, overseas and in Australia that uh, there was moves to help people move around more safely and freely without kind of shooting the cost back to them to keep their, their safety at hand by moving around in cars, by walking and cycling and 
bog standard physical distancing. And what's happened? State budgets come down again here in Victoria. You might remember a decade ago there was a bit of hue and cry about the somewhat disappearance of the state bicycle budget. I think it's a different sort of reporting where you know things disappear into other spend pools. Andrew's government is facing calls to pour more cash into walking and cycling in wake of its targets it's set to boost active modes of transport under its new climate strategy. The government allocated $21 million for new walking and cycling upgrades in its budget handed down last week compared to the $38 million it set aside the year before. It represents a fraction of money spent on roads and rail networks across the state. Well, you know, use a very archaic expression from my generation, duh, Fred. Now, Ben Rossiter, Executive Officer of Pedestrian Lobby Group, Victoria Walks said a more serious investment in walking infrastructure was needed, including a strategy on walking. Failing to do this would put the government in danger of falling short on its new target of 25% of all trips being cycling or walking, is what I've just been discussing. We don't have a Ministry of Magic to simply wave a wand to reach our target to require significant investment. And this is the other problem we've got, and it's uh, basically leadership. We are living in a very politically reactive environment and, as I was just saying earlier, it permeates all through three levels of government where nice things are said but they're not acted upon. And that's what I can probably say publicly. But I also think there's a generational change occurring probably within, you know, various, you know, again, three levels of government of people or strategists or lobbyists or people who make policy, understanding that it's too little too late and we've got into possibly analysis paralysis, we've possibly got into, oh, someone else can sort it out, it's nothing to do with me when it comes to walking and cycling. Well, it's garbage, it's a garbage approach. Actually, no, the TAC Safer Cycling and Pedestrian Fund was involved in 2014, so they must indeed have compound interest on this. And also, you remember last year they were going to, this is the state government again, we're going to do 100 kilometres of pop-up lanes and the like, and it's June and it's not happening. And I think there's an absolute failure, to kind of repeat myself over and over again, an absolute failure of leadership. As no doubt that you know in the media and listening to 3CR, we are facing a crisis of environmental issues, public health issues, and we are sleepwalking continually into more problems. I can remember in previous decades where, in comparison to how uh, cycling and walking is dealt with today, there were quite revolutionary things happen, federal government level, not to do with those two things I just mentioned, but in terms of public health, social justice, that's gone by the way now. We've kind of moved into a very reactionary and aspirational approach to how we actually govern Australia. And as you would know, again, if you listen to this show, cycling is seen as something bizarre and other and a whole bunch of grab bag things you can put into it. And it's not. It's simply another way of moving around. Okay, off the soapbox. Uh, it's good to see uh, fellow uh, Yarra people, Jeremy Lawrence, the president of Community Group Streets Alive. Yarra is pushing for more pedestrian crossings in the inner suburb of Cremorne. Two weeks ago, his group painted temporary zebra crossings in Cremorne and Balmain Streets under a resident-led trial designed to slow down traffic and give pedestrians more priority. 
That's a very small snippet of what actually Stretch Live Yarra does. You can get on there and have a look at the testimonials. You probably heard I play a community service announcement on the show from them. And also, uh, if you want to be a community champion for your street or area, contact um, either Alison or Jeremy at Stretch Live Yarra. Again, it's a lot of announcements, nice things with very little benchmarking or very little long-term outcome because, again, we're just... uh, we just fall prey to whatever the electoral cycle is, and again, uh, with when I think I've mentioned this on the last show, you know, when uh, your local council has consultations, you know, you have your your say, plug-in module sort of thing, where things are get said and, and in good faith, residents believe their feedback has been listened to. And I'm not kind of trying to completely criticise this program or this way of consultation, but as we're seeing in Yarra, we're seeing in Darabin, and I've seen in a few other places where the consultation is finished, the council officer's report has been finalised, it's gone to council, and at the last moment we have someone's feelings or a effort. <laughs> I've, been, I've been quite general here on a, an effort to derail stuff. And it's something that, again, with uh, the uh, article I've just um, been kind of cherry-picking out of the age, it's stuff that erodes people's confidence and trust in government or, and or our authorities or regulatory authorities to do anything about changing stuff because it can't always come down to the individual and this is what I was talking about with the way our reactionary politics has run everything into the ground. Apparently it's up to you and me to change it. Well, yes, that's that's a point of lobbying and advocacy and all the rest, but it's also a point of governments actually acting upon things, having long-term policies, having long-term goals, and not shifting every time they have an election or a populist, non-fact kind of argument starts driving the agenda. Anyway, you probably had enough of me soapboxing. But after the break, I'm going to be chatting to Matthew about some myths surrounding 30-kilometre speed limits around Australia. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. We've been striking on and off since the 1st of November. We're here with a lot of other kids from Castlemaine. From the school strike for climate and trade union rallies to Invasion Day protests and public housing vigils, 3CR's outside broadcasts bring the voices of dissent from the streets onto Melbourne radio. Currently, this can involve crouching on the ground at a rally with a laptop and a mic trying to capture people's voices for broadcast. Your donation will enable us to purchase much-needed equipment to avoid dropouts and delays and provide training for our outside broadcast volunteers. Help get us off the ground so we can get the word out to you. And for one week only, ethicaljobs.com.au will double every donation up to the value of $5,000. Just go to 3cr.org.au before May 27th and click the donate button to help get us off the ground. And you're indeed listening to 3CR Community Radio. And you're listening to Yarra Bosco Uses Group Radio on Monday morning. And on the phone today, I have Matthew from uh, the was it School of Medicine and Public Health, the University of Newcastle. 
G'day, how are you? Good. Now, you're actually a very uh, vocal advocate of uh, 30 kilometre speed limits in Australia, and last week uh, you were a co-author of an article in the uh, conversation about uh, five myths around 30 kilometre speed limits in Australia. That's right, yeah. We, we, um, we wrote an article busting five myths about 30 kilometre zones in Australia because we just seen that there's a little bit of misinformation floating around what 30 kilometres an hour speed limits can actually achieve. And, you know, we wanted to kind of outline the evidence showing how good 30 kilometre zones can be for Australia. Mm. It's uh, quite pertinent considering, uh, I, I don't know what it's like where you are at the moment in Newcastle, but in Melbourne, our traffic is just horrific at the moment. And we're seeing more and more pushes to just allow the wash of traffic to, you know, continue unimpeded. And mm. it's interesting that, you know, this article has, you know, come up, plus, you know, the, was it United Nations had uh, a was it promotion last week for Love 30? That's right. The United Nations campaign last week was yep. a, a real success, and they talked about all, countries all over the world that are adopting 30 kilometre speed limits. Um, touching on your point there about Newcastle and kind of how we're doing where I am, we're certainly not seeing the same levels of traffic as, say, a big city like Melbourne. Um, of course, Newcastle is quite a bit smaller. But what we are seeing is that our shopping streets, you know, we have a couple of main shopping streets, one of them being Beaumont Street that runs through our uh, one of our bigger suburbs. That's chock-a-block with cars and chock-a-block with traffic. And it's not a particularly safe place to shop or a particularly attractive place to have a coffee and sit out on the on the curbside and i know that you guys in melbourne are, are really proud of your coffee culture and um, your laneways and streetways and i think 30 kilometers an hour is one way for other cities to kind of pick up on that and try and build a bit of that slow culture and um especially safe and attractive culture around some of the shops and cafes and bars and restaurants because mm. we've seen that with uh, with the last twelve months of rollouts of um, parklets and uh, on on street uh, dining and the like, mm. but with the move back to like you know full steam recovery economy and all whatever you know thing I want to chuck into it, uh, we've seen like people just get. Uh, a predominance of uh, using their cars because of an obvious fear of COVID. Mm. But we're, yeah, we're in a really interesting predicament at the moment in the largest cities, and as you're just saying for Newcastle. Now, uh, you know that uh, you're saying in the article we've got five states and territories are trialling or planning 30-kilometre speed limits. And actually, mm. what, what do you think these are urgent and necessary? Well, they're urgent and necessary... The urgent bit there, definitely urgent for safety. And in terms of economic recovery, uh, they're also urgent too. Because we know, you know, like you were saying there, that it's things like parklets, it's things like 30 km an hour speed limits that can help create the really enjoyable places to spend time in. And we in Newcastle haven't been as lucky as some of the other bigger cities in terms of trialling parklets. And that would be certainly something that we'd like to have a look at. But 30 kilometres an hour speed limit is kind of one of a suite of things. You know, parklets being another, or um, traffic calming, like speed humps, um, that can kind of help create that livable atmosphere and, and, and make our um, towns and cities more mm. pleasant places to be in. 
in terms of the safety bit, that we know that there's about 1,100 people a year that die on Australian roads, and a lot of these are in urban areas on streets with 50 kilometres an hour speed limits. So whilst, you know, we're talking about shopping streets, we're also talking about places where people live in terms of our suburbs and our um, local residential streets, and we're talking about school zones as well. We're talking about where our kids are getting to and from school. So there's kind of plenty of urban areas that are really well suited to 30 kilometres an hour. And it's great that I've seen lots of discussion over the last week in response to our article and the conversation around, you know, 30 kilometres an hour isn't just going to do it alone. And that's absolutely right. Um, 30 kilometres an hour speed limits is just one ingredient in the, you know, whole plethora of different ingredients that are needed. You know, you can't make a cake with just flour. <laughs> um, there's there's lots of other stuff that's needed. We've got uh, pedestrian and driver education, which is important. Enforcement of speed limits, because we know that, you know, that helps and, and that's something that can um, help reduce speed. There's different street design features. We know that Western Australia, for example, are trialling um, safe active streets, which are a fantastic thing if you're wanted to go and have a quick Google of those, they're a red street with blue markings that indicate safe active street and there's all sorts of curvatures and um, cutouts in the street that help slow the traffic down. Mm. And you can really see the benefit for all road users, not just for cars, but also for people walking and cycling and, and rolling wheelchairs because there's far less people needing to rat run along those streets because they're now safe active streets uh, mm. where people can just spend a little bit more time. And a case in point, I know New South Wales has uh, minimum passing legislation for cyclists. We've just recently introduced it into Victoria. Now, uh, it'd actually make that legislation easier to be effective if uh, people are passing each other at, you know, well, predominantly uh, motorised vehicles, passing riders at slower speeds. That's right, yeah. And one very interesting thing about the, the enforcement of the slow passing is the paper from New South Wales recently in the last year or so, which looked at how many people were um, pinged for a close pass and how many were pinged for a... Um, a a, uh, another driving-related offence. I think it was, um, I think it was either being on the mobile phone or something like that. And you look at the the comparison of how many people that are getting uh, done for closed passes, and it's very, very, very low. Mm. Um, the enforcement of that is, is quite difficult. Of course, that really does help, and um, that is one of the ingredients in the cake. And we need to keep adding to. Um, the ingredients so that we do build a, a safer and more livable place to be in. Mm. Um, yeah. So with the time we have, we just want to go through these five myths. And Sure. Yeah, so like number one myth is they don't make a difference, and the fact is they do. Well, they absolutely do, yeah. We know that the chance of survival when you get hit by a car um, goes from 60% chance of survival at 40 kilometres an hour to 90% at 30 kilometres an hour. So even in our kind of um, low-speed zones already that are typically 40 kilometres an hour, we know that reducing it down to 30 can have that additional benefit. And, of course, that's the impact speed rather than the speed limit, but we know that speed limits are one of those things that help reduce speed. So in terms of do they make a difference, they absolutely make a difference to safety, mm. and they contribute to making a difference to livability as well.
myth two, they aren't popular with Australians. This is a really interesting one um, in terms of there's, you know, there's different pieces of data out there. The piece of data that we use is from a nationally representative poll from the Heart Foundation, which found that two-thirds of Australians say they want lower speed limits on local streets. Now, there are a couple of different surveys that say um, slightly different things, though we know that over time, as these things are implemented, people's support for them around the world actually grows. So as people see that traffic reduces and places become more livable, uh, its community support skyrockets. So it's one of those where sometimes you've got to get enough people to back it and then following that and it's following it actually being implemented, you see more and more people start to appreciate the benefits. Myth number three is that they will increase journey times. And that's something that's quite pertinent here in Melbourne because we have some quite long commuting uh, distances for people to do and also not just commuting to a job. Their role is on the road. So can you, you know, speak to that? Yeah, definitely. Um, most of the journey time is going to be in the car. You're not actually spending on 30 kilometre speed limit streets. Um, or, you know, we're looking at residential streets here, we're looking at school zones and we're looking at shopping streets. Um, in urban areas. So the, the majority of journeys aren't completed on those type of streets. There was um, a study here that we, we included within the article that found that the impact on a typical journey to work of about 25 minutes is less than a minute in ter terms of total journey length. And if that improves safety, if that's what is, is required or one of the things that's required, I think that's a, a fantastic trade-off. A very small, negligible amount of time that can help improve the lives of people living in Australia and also save the lives of Australians. Myth number four, they are anti-motorists. And this is this is a rising clamour I've kind of been picking up in the last little while of, uh, I, I need my car, I must be able to get around, you're trying to take away my um, my right to drive. It's a, another interesting one. Um, yeah. And, you know, I encourage people to go and have a look at the article for a bit more, but just one of the points that we made was that Lower speed limits lead to fewer car crashes. So your insurance costs on your car are going to go down. Yep. The time you're delayed in traffic doesn't really change as, as per myth three. Um, but also you'll find that as streets are safer for people, um, and speed limits are one of those ingredients, um, that we'll find that more people start shifting towards other modes of transport for short things. And that takes cars off the street. So that makes journeys in a car faster overall. Mm. So... We know that speed limits is not the is not the be all and end all um, in terms of uh, time in traffic, and there's all sorts of things that um, impact on our journey times, and there's all sorts of things that make things anti-motorist. But this really isn't an anti-motorist policy. This is this is something that can help everybody on the streets. Mm. And uh, myth number five, which is a big one because it's 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 a common retort, which is it's just more for government fines. Yeah, you see a lot of um, fun headlines in the press about this kind of stuff. Um, as I was saying before, you know, speed enforcement is something that works and it is one of those ingredients that we need in order to make sure that speed limits are, you know, kind of adhered to. Adhered to. Uh, street design is another one of those ingredients. But I would just say that the government's also interested in saving some of those 1,100 Australian lives a year. And they're also interested in economic recovery mm. and economic prosperity in the future. So we know that it can improve both of those things 
um, in the short term as well. These things can happen fairly quickly. Uh, and 30 kilometre hour speed limits can happen fairly quickly if we um, can get our get our act into into gear. Yeah, because I know the uh, city of uh, Yarra have uh, done measures around 30 kilometres. You know, like um, a recent, oh, in the last couple of years, trial, and that's been enacted in certain parts of Yarra. And I know that city of Derebin are putting in 40 kilometre limits on uh, some of the more residential areas. So it's it's happening, but it's not fast enough because um, you're saying a yeah, leadership is needed to counter these myths about um, these speed limits, and also as we're saying in the intro, it was um, the campaign last week's parts of streets for uh, streets for life, uh, yeah. a campaign for global road safety week. Yeah, and these trials are happening. Like you say, there's kind of five states and territories around Australia that are trialing them around the world. That's kind of how it started. A couple of states and territories in various countries have picked it up, and then the country has gone, oh, actually, this is a great idea for the whole country, and we should make this a default urban speed limit for, for all streets. And that's what we've seen in the last week in the United Nations Road Safety Week campaign. We saw that Spain came out and said that they were um, going towards 30 kilometres an hour as a, as a national thing, even though a lot of their cities had already picked it up. Mm. So it's nice to see that Australian cities are picking it up. And it's, you know, I haven't been to Melbourne for a while, but it's great to see that, you know, and hear that Melbourne are um, kind of picking bits of that up. And here in Newcastle, we have got one, which is exciting. As a, as a regional town, we did, uh, or as a regional city, we did pick up um, one 30 kilometres an hour speed limit. It's just doing more of them, and more of them in the right places around schools around shopping streets, around where people live. And then from there, we can see the real impact on, um, you know, all of those myths and we can actually start to myth-bust them in real life. Mm. So in closing, if people are interested in learning more about uh, the benefits of 30-kilometre speed limits in you know, residential areas, where would you direct them towards, Matthew? Well, I'd send them towards a website, 30please.org, which is an Australian campaign, and I would encourage them to have a look around on that site. They can check out, our, of course, our Miss Busted article. They can check out last week's United Nations Road Safety Week campaign. And after having had a look at all of that, they may come across the six compelling co-benefits of 30 kilometres an hour, which include livability, air quality, equity, physical activity, and a couple of others. So I really would uh, encourage people to go and have a look and see uh, what first comments and our speedlings can do for us. Yeah, because uh, I think um, earlier this year I had Lena Hutter, uh, who does uh, 30please.org, talking about the similar issues. Uh, you know, you know, with her, like as a parent, and what she sees and what how she can you know safely move her children and family. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's a very interesting and also um, quite pertinent <laughs> issue of, as you're saying, a suite of measures like you know, separator facilities, parklets, um, long-term strategies and goals of you know, making our uh, shared areas more livable and healthier. That's right. Yeah. And, and healthier, and that's the angle that I come at it from. My PhD is in health and physical activity specifically. And so I come at this from a physical activity angle and that we know that making streets safer and more attractive for people actually makes them want to walk and cycle and roll on them more. Yeah. And they feel safer to do that and they get out and they get a little bit more active. And they do take that little trip to the shops by foot rather than by car. So mm. 
yeah, that's that's the angle I come at it from, and and so everybody kind of has a different benefit to take away from this, and all main benefit, and certainly to me it's the physical activity kind of thing. But you know, some people come at it from the road safety or the air quality or the equity, because we know that not all of our street users are able to use cars to get around. Yeah, and it's kind of thinking of others on our street is a really important thing. Yeah, thank you so much for your time today, uh, Matthew. It's been really quite enlightening, and I implore people to look up more about the uh, 30 campaigns, like Love 30, 30, Please, and the like. Great. Thanks very much. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood, or school. It's fast, free, and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Okay, that's all I've got time for today on Yarra Bike Radio. Podcast should be up shortly at 3cr.org.au forward slash Yarra Bug. And I'll put a few more links and stuff in today, uh, what we've been discussing. I also made a remiss of, uh, on the last show, I discussed a ride that happened back in 96 and, um, Ted was looking for people who had been on that ride and I didn't put the information to the podcast. So I'm sorry about that. I'll put it into this week's. Okay. Don't forget, Radiothon is coming and, uh, we need your support to stay on air. Up next, is Shebop followed by Blacklock. CR would like to thank our Yarrabug program sponsor, Backrose Second Chance Cycles, for their financial support. Second Chance Cycles is a fantastic community workshop that recycles bikes, trains people in bike mechanics, and sells bikes to the local community. If you have a healthcare card, they'll give you a bike free of charge. To find out more, search for Vacro online or drop into the underground car park, Harmsworth Street, Collingwood, any Thursday or Friday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.